Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share the keynote featuring Spark Therapeutics' Dr. Catherine High, who presented at the 2019 pod, Partnership Opportunities and Drug Delivery, about her work using gene therapy for genetic diseases, especially ones that were previously untreatable. The 2020 pod event will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks to the organizers for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to review some of the work that we've done at Spark Therapeutics in uh, developing gene therapies for single gene disorders and try to touch on some of the interplay between gene therapies and uh, drug delivery along the way. So... This is my forward-looking statement. You can read more about this if you want in our many filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, I would say that for much of gene therapy, the bedrock of what we're doing is the work that was done in the Human Genome Project. And one of the, one of the goals of the Human Gen- Genome Project had been to expand therapeutic options for people who were born with serious genetic diseases. Um, But as you may know from the history of gene therapy, uh, the first clinical trials of gene therapy were conducted at the NIH in 1990 for a rare immunodeficiency disorder. And through the first decade of clinical gene therapy, it appeared to be generally safe but without compelling evidence of efficacy. At the end of that first decade, there were multiple high-profile adverse events, and that led to a broad retrenchment in the field And most of the work in gene therapy retreated back into academic medical centers. And over the second decade of clinical gene therapy, positive results began to slowly accumulate. And in 2012, the first uh, gene therapy for a genetic disease was actually granted conditional approval by the European Medicines Agency. That was an AAV vector for a rare Uh, lipid disorder, lipoprotein lipase deficiency, and it was really uh, from that first approval of Glybera in 2012 uh, that the field has steadily gained momentum. At the current time, there are uh, five approved products, well, sorry, I should say four, four approved products for genetic disease between the United States and Europe. Uh, And you can see that many of these have found their way to approval in the last few years. Uh, So Stromvelis was approved by the European Medicines Agency in 2016 for a rare immunodeficiency disorder. Luxterna was approved in 2017 by the FDA and 2018 uh, by the EMA. Zolgensma for spinal muscular atrophy was approved in 2019 by the FDA, and Zintaglow for a subset of beta thalassemia, uh, a congenital anemia, was approved in 2019 by the European Medicines Agency. Um, if we look at IND submissions for gene and cell therapy products as a function of time, what you can see is that in the last two years, the number of these uh, IND applications submitted to the FDA has increased dramatically. And uh, actually, the head of CBER, Dr. Peter Marks, uh, mentioned in a conversation a couple of weeks ago 
that the number for 2019 will exceed the number for 2018. So it is a rapidly growing field. And I think it's reaching an inflection point similar to what was seen in the mid-1990s, mid to late 1990s with monoclonal antibodies, where the first licensed product, uh, OKT3, which is used to, uh, to facilitate organ transplantation and block rejection of transplanted organs, was approved in 1986, and then the progress seemed to be slow after that. But by uh, 2007, eight of the top 20 biotech drugs were monoclonal antibodies. So I think we're at a point similar to right here in terms of gene therapy. I think we'll continue to see more approvals in the next few years uh, and that this work will continue to advance. So just to say a little bit about our gene delivery uh, vehicle, our uh, delivery device, uh, the, the goal of gene therapy for genetic diseases is to get long-term expression of the donated gene at levels that are high enough to have a therapeutic effect and obviously uh, it's important that that be done safely and durably. Um, and the main gene delivery devices that we have are, are engineered from uh, viruses. So the viral vectors are largely deleted of viral coding sequences, which are then replaced with, um, with the gene of interest. And so there's the gene, the gene delivery vehicle or the vector, and then the physiologically relevant target tissue into which the vector containing the gene are delivered to get the therapeutic effect. Um, and of course, the main principle here is simply that proteins have a relatively short half-life and DNA can typically last for the duration of the cell if it can be introduced into the cell. So to get long-term expression of a donated gene in gene therapy, there are basically two types of strategies. One is to use an integrating vector and to introduce it into a stem cell. And then because the DNA is integrated into the stem cell, uh, all the daughter cells will contain the donated DNA and you get long-term expression on that basis. And of course, that's what lentiviral and retroviral vectors do when introduced into hematopoietic stem cells. And that's the basis of, for example, Zintiglo, the drug for beta thalassemia. Um, there's another way to get long-term expression, and that does not require integration. And that's to introduce the vector into a long-lived post-mitotic cell type. And in that case, as long as the DNA can be stabilized in the cell and the cell itself is long-lived, you will achieve long-term expression. So tissues like hepatocytes, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, uh, neurons in the central nervous system, these are all very long-lived cells. And if the DNA can be stabilized there, you'll get long-term expression. Uh, now, most of those tissue types do not lend themselves well to being removed from the body and then put back in. So instead, now you're looking at in vivo delivery of the vector uh, in this situation. So it is the latter situation that we use at Spark Therapeutics. Uh, I'll say a little bit about uh, Luxterna, which was the first licensed gene therapy product for a single gene disorder in the United States. And this was for uh, a group of diseases that previously had had no treatment. Uh, I think that that will be an important area for gene therapy 
is the possibility to develop treatments for diseases that have formerly lacked any treatment. But as I'll show you, there are some problems inherent in working on diseases that, uh, that have not previously had treatments. So the disease that I'm talking about here is, um, is uh, RPE65 deficiency. It is uh, an amino, uh, sorry, it's, a, it's an autosomal recessive disorder uh, that is, uh, tip, that, that is uh, characterized by early onset retinal degeneration um, and night blindness is the early symptom. Uh, typically when these children present, they have this phenomenon called nystagmus where there are these rapid back and forth eye movements and uh, one of the advantages of RPE65 as a first target for gene therapy is that there was a naturally occurring dog model of the disease, so it was possible to work out some of the problems uh, in the dog model. RPE65 gene encodes a protein, retinal pigment epithelium 65 kilodalton protein, that is actually involved in uh, the cycle in which light is converted to an electrical signal uh, that involves the conversion of cis-retinol to trans-retinol, and the trans-retinol uh, is then transported back uh, from the photoreceptors into the retinal pigment epithelial cells, and then under the action of this enzyme, which is an isomerohydrolase, uh, cis-retinol is regenerated, and without the enzyme, it can't be regenerated, and the visual cycle is broken, and eventually, the accumulation of uh, toxic uh, substrates for the enzyme results in damage to the RPE cells. And uh, since they serve as nurse cells for the photoreceptors, that eventually results in the loss of the photoreceptors. And most of these patients uh, eventually progress to blindness. Um, so again, we had strong proof of concept in large animal model. And beginning in 2005, went through a period of extensively uh, optimizing the uh, construct itself and its delivery in, uh, in a large animal model. We uh, worked with a number of different formulations to ensure that we did not have adherence of the vector to the uh, product contact surfaces and we used lessons from other work we had done in another disease target, hemophilia, to make sure that the clinical trial design included uh, steroids as immunomodulatory agents to try to reduce any uh, gene, uh, any immune response to the transgene. Um, so this actually shows uh, in the operating room through the operating microscope, the view uh, with the injection of the vector into a false space that the surgeon creates under the retina, and that introduces in a volume of 300 microliters uh, the vector that uh, transduces the RPE cells to supply the missing RPE65. So we knew from the beginning of the phase one, two studies that, that the subretinal injection of the AAV vector expressing the missing gene was having a fairly profound effect. 
And the problem that we faced was that there had previously been no treatments for inherited retinal dystrophies. So we had to figure out a way to quantify the effect that we were seeing in a reproducible way, uh, and that meant that we had to develop and then validate a novel clinical endpoint. Um, and so we went through a, a series of uh, uh, experiments around that, and also uh, to look at the durability of the effect and try to define the population of interest. So the novel endpoint that we devised is uh, shown here, and uh, it was a mobility test that could be run in the clinic, and it was given at a series of seven different light levels, and the way it was used to support approval of the drug was that at baseline, before the patient was injected, uh, we determined the lowest of seven light levels where they could pass based on speed and accuracy of executing the course, and one year after vector injection, we again determined the lowest level, and it was possible through this mechanism to define a level of improvement uh, in the individuals who were enrolled in the phase three study. And uh, we, we developed a number of methodologies to improve the rigor of this mobility test. We had 12 different courses that all had the same number of turns and arrows and obstacles on the course, but they were presented to patients in randomized order. Uh, all the runs of the course were videotaped and sent to an independent reading center. The order of the test was shuffled from baseline 30 days, 90 days, 180, and 365. So the videotapes were presented, sorry, in shuffled order to the uh, graders, and they didn't know whether they were looking at the day 180 or the baseline or the day 365. And as I said, there was a very detailed grading rubric that uh, where patients had to pass on both time and accuracy in order to get a passing score. Um, so the phase three trial design is graphed here. It was a multi-center, open-label, randomized controlled crossover design. We could not use sham surgery in this because there were children in the, um, in the trial. Uh, phase one, two included children down to the age of eight, and based on the safety data in phase one, two, in phase three, we were able to include children down to the age of three. Uh, and so once patients were determined to be eligible, they were randomized either into an intervention group where both eyes were injected uh, at uh, the um, time zero, and then the second eye typically one week later after the patch had come off the first eye, or they went through all the same evaluations with no intervention, and at the end of one year, they were able to cross over and receive the intervention. So this just graphs uh, the clinical development program, and it illustrates a couple of the other problems. One was that there was very little natural history data for this rare, ultra-rare disease, and so we had to develop that as well in parallel with the trial. And I mentioned that we had to first develop and then validate this multi-luminance mobility test in uh, individuals with inherited retinal diseases. So the um, actual <laughs> clinical development program spanned 
uh, nearly 10 years with the initial IND being submitted in 2007, and there was an advisory committee meeting in October of 2017, and a couple of months after that, the drug was actually approved. Uh, so part of the long duration of this development program had to do with the fact that at multiple steps, we had to stop and confer with the FDA around uh, issues in the trial. So um, I think what I'm going to try to do here, this, this just shows that in the year after the launch, uh, that we um, opened 10 treatment centers throughout the United States. And all of these pharmacies had to learn how to handle uh, AAV. And uh, we, we obviously had to have training sessions in Philadelphia for the vitreoretinal surgeons. And all of these treatment centers were ones where there are uh, individuals who are experts in these inherited retinal dystrophies. And so maybe if you can just play the last movie. my first day back in school, and I was in math class, and my teacher was writing on the board. And I, when she finished writing, I was like, wow, I saw it. And I went home, and I told my mom, I was like, Mom, I could see the whiteboard. Homework on his own, he did his projects on his own, and he's never done that before. To get pizza with my friend, it was like 7.30, it was like, a little dim out. I've never rode my bike at all at night, and now I can. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go so fast. So, so um, you know, it's been very gratifying. This that little boy was the first patient treated after the drug approval, and he was uh, treated here in Boston at Mass Eye in a year. Um, so, I'm gonna just. Uh, can you advance the slide? Yeah, I'll just note that there are uh, 260 different in genes involved in vision, so uh, there's still a lot to do in terms of inherited retinal dystrophies, and I'm happy to say that there are a number of trials ongoing. And I think I've, I seem to not be able to... Okay, there we go. So I think the other point I wanted to make is just that not only does gene therapy have the potential to treat classes of diseases that currently have no treatments, but it also has the ability to improve on current classes of therapeutics. And just um, a good example of this is gene therapy for hemophilia. This is a situation where the endpoints are well established based on protein therapeutics and include the annualized bleeding rate and the level of clotting factor in the circulation. Uh, but the challenge of gene therapy for hemophilia was that in order to reach the liver as the target for the AAV vector, we were infusing the vector through the circulation. And in that setting, uh, the immu human immune response to the vector has a good opportunity to get a good look at the vector. So it's very different from the subretinal space, which is a relatively immunoprivileged space. And so we spent a good deal of time working through uh, characterizing the human immune response to AAV vectors so that we could manage it and have a therapeutic effect. So I'll just show you in the top diagram there, it shows what happens when you infuse an AAV vector into the circulation in a hemophilic dog. The vector goes in at time zero and the factor level slowly rises into a therapeutic range, uh, which goes on for 
periods of up to a decade, and you know we've followed these animals for that long, so long-lasting expression from a single infusion. But the first time that we infused a therapeutic dose in a human, his factor IX level rose uh, pretty much as predicted by the work in hemophilic dogs, and it stayed there for about four weeks, and then it gradually fell. Uh, and at the same time, the liver enzymes went up and then fell in tandem with the falling level of the factor IX. And at the end of about 14 weeks, the patient was back to where he started uh, with no factor IX. And that was uh, something we had never seen in animal models, mice, rats, rabbits, non-human primates, and hemophilic dogs. So we had to spend a little time trying to figure out what was going on. And as you can see here, and this took me about 10 years to figure out and, uh, when I was still at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but uh, what we eventually learned is that once the AAV vector goes into the hepatocyte, uh, it uncoats and the DNA goes into the nucleus and starts driving expression of the clotting factor, but parts of the caps are left behind in the cytosol. They undergo proteasomal processing and then tr are transported into the endoplasmic reticulum where they're loaded onto MHC class one molecules, making the hepatocyte a target for circulating lymphocytes, which humans possess because they are natural hosts for the wild type AAV and most animals are not. So that was one of the hard lessons that we learned during clinical development. Uh, it turns out we had hypothesized that a short course of steroids should block the immune response um, until the capsid proteins could be catabolized and degraded, and then you should be able to get long-term expression, and that turned out to be true. Uh, so this is the vector that we eventually developed at Spark Therapeutics. It, it had a bioengineered AAV capsid with tropism for liver, and we used as the gene not wild-type factor IX, but a factor IX variant that was originally described in a kindred in Italy where there was an increase in, um, in specific activity of the factor IX. The patient presented with a clot at a young age, and it turned out that his only defect was this high specific activity factor IX, and we capitalized on that because it has about eight-fold greater activity in coagulation compared to wild-type factor IX. So then we were able to give a relatively low dose of vector and yet get um, um, high circulating levels of clotting factor activity. Okay, so this is just um, a picture of the trial design. We originally... Uh, set out to do this phase one, two study as a dose escalation study, but it turned out that we got good results in the first dose, and so that's the dose that's being carried forward into phase three in a trial that's being run by Pfizer. So for patients who meet inclusion criteria, um, the uh, vector is infused intravenously in a one-hour outpatient infusion uh, and then there's fairly intensive monitoring for the first 12 weeks or so, and after that, progressively less frequently. And the data in this study, we did, of course, have to do both stability and device compatibility studies uh, for this, and I included 
earlier in a slide that somehow didn't make it in here, a uh, quote from the 2018 guidance document uh, on, from the FDA on CMC aspects of gene therapy, uh, information about the stability studies after the vector is mixed in the pharmacy and the device compatibility studies that have to be completed. But uh, as you can see, we had to complete device compatibility studies for all the product contact surfaces that uh, the vector traverses before entering the patient's uh, vein. So the data here uh, demonstrate uh, that, again, after this vector is infused, uh, over a period of weeks, the factor IX level rises into the range of, on average, 30% uh, in these first 10 participants in the phase 1-2 study. And this goes out to over two years, so you can see that uh, they appear to have a durable effect with observation ongoing. And then this uh, clearly has the desired therapeutic effect in terms of reducing the bleeding rate in the phase 1-2 study. And, uh, and you can see that in the year prior to vector infusion, uh, nearly all of these patients had had bleeding episodes despite good treatment with protein infusion typically given one to two times per week. And after the uh, year uh, and one year after vector infusion, you can see they've had a very marked reduction, 98% reduction in the bleeding rate starting uh, from a time point four weeks after vector infusion. And they have also had a corresponding very marked reduction in factor consumption uh, in the phase one, two study. And you see that here as well uh, for all of these individuals. So uh, it, it really has the capacity to sort of demedicalize their treatment. So instead of frequent medical interventions with intravenous infusion of clotting factor concentrate, instead uh, they have a single infusion. And, you know, as I showed you earlier, they've had durable expression. Uh, the graph showed two years with observation ongoing. And this work is now in uh, a phase three trial being uh, run by Pfizer. The data from the phase one, two study showed no serious adverse events, and uh, there were uh, two episodes of elevated transaminases, but both of those responded to administered oral corticosteroids. Um, okay. So I'm just going to conclude by saying that uh, when Luxterna, the eye product, was approved, the FDA held a press conference, and the FDA uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb made this statement, which is cer certainly something that I've believed for a long time, but I, I can't go around saying that, but I was surprised to hear the then FDA Commissioner say that he thought that gene therapy would be a mainstay in treating many of our most devastating and intractable illnesses. Um, if you want to read more about this, we recently published a review uh, in the New England Journal Frontiers in Medicine series about gene therapy, uh, and it mostly focused on gene therapy for genetic disease. So at this point, uh, all I need to do is acknowledge my many collaborators, both at Spark, at the University of Pennsylvania, and the University of Iowa, where the phase three studies took place for Luxterna, and the individuals involved in the phase one, two studies of hemophilia B, 
uh, who are listed on this slide. So I'm happy to take uh, questions. I, I feel bad because somehow the presentation that I gave here did not include slides I had uh, thought that I put into the presentation about device compatibility studies for the inherited retinal disease work. Um, so we sampled a number of different cannulas that are used in vitreoretinal surgery, and we did have to develop a formulation that ensured that we did not get adherence of the vector to the delivery device. And uh, we have gone through and, and uh, ensured the efficacy of the use of number, a number of different cannulas for, um, <clears throat> for delivery to the subretinal space. Um, and so that's been fine where the drug has been licensed so far, which includes the US, uh, Europe, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think that there has been an issue around uh, devices that are used in China, uh, which, which we will still need to do uh, device compatibility studies for, or our partner Novartis will need to do them because they are uh, marketing the product outside the United States. Thank you for your attention. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Pod Drug Delivery Conference. The 2020 meeting will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.